to the mTOR you know. Today's episode is on interpreting data in solid organ transplant. We are excited to have Rita Alloway as part of our panel for this discussion. Rita R. Alloway, PharmD, FCCP, is a research professor in the College of Medicine at the University of Cincinnati and director of transplant clinical research. She also serves as director of the Transplant Pharmacy Residency and Fellowship, where since 1994, she has trained over 30 pharmacy residents and fellows in solid organ transplantation with a focus on clinical research. Her clinical research in transplantation has generated over 200 peer-reviewed publications and over 150 invited lectures to present specific research results and overviews of transplant immunosuppression. We are also joined by Dr. Simon Tremblay. Dr. Tremblay received his bachelor's and master's of pharmacy from the University of Montreal, where he also completed his PGY-1 residency and joined the Montreal Heart Institute, where he practiced in cardiovascular critical care and heart transplant. He then completed a postgraduate PharmD at the University of British Columbia, followed by a PGY-2 residency and fellowship in solid organ transplant and clinical research at the University of Cincinnati, where he also obtained his PhD in epidemiology. Simon served as research assistant professor of surgery and director of regulatory and scientific affairs before joining Veloxis Pharmaceuticals as director of clinical development. His research interests include both clinical and translational research in the fields of antihumoral therapies, desensitization strategies, novel immunosuppressant agents, as well as pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenomics of immunosuppressants. As a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thank you all for joining today's podcast on interpreting data in solid organ transplant. And we are your hosts. This is Eileen Chi and Lauren Schumacher. And we have the honor and the absolute pleasure of having with us the two best panelists for this particular topic. And um, I'm just going to, without further ado, have them introduce themselves. My name is uh, Rita Alloway. I'm a pharmacist at the University of Cincinnati. I've been here for over 20 years. Um, And before that, I was at the University of Tennessee. You can see the accent has not left me and... um, have been doing clinical research and training PharmDs in the aspects of clinical research and transplant for many years and um, have really enjoyed this as a career and look forward to seeing others proceed down this path as well. And next we have Simon. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, So Simon Tremblay, I'm also a, a transplant pharmacist by training epidemiologist as well with a focus in clinical trials who also trained under the illustrious Rita Alloway. So very privileged to have done that. And um, stay in academia and research for a few years. Joined uh, the contract research organization world with CTI Clinical Trial and Services before joining Veloxis Pharmaceuticals to lead development of one of uh, our new assets. So very excited to be here today. And I can say on behalf of Lauren and myself, uh, first, uh, glad to have both of you. And this is a very highly anticipated podcast joined by the two superpower 
um, in Solid Organ Transplant Pharmacy. So uh, we look forward to having the conversation. And without further ado, uh, we just want to ask, uh, you know, when it comes to interpreting data in solid organ transplant is that both of you have either been conducting clinical trial or have been part of company sponsored clinical trials. Um, from your personal experience, what are some of the things that you really found that's been interesting to you and also perhaps unexpected when you first started out in this process and journey of clinical trials? And Rita, uh, if you may go first. Sure. Um, obviously, I found this um, part of the world participating in clinical trials very interesting and fulfilling, or I would not have done it for so many years. However, what was really surprising to me is that the idea or the hypothesis for the clinical trial is really the easy part. Um, the devil is in the details of the implementation, the conduct, the analysis, and then fully pushing it across the finish line to publication. Um, I think there are two main types of clinical trials, as you mentioned, pharmaceutical sponsored trials and investigator initiated trials. And if you're conducting investigator-initiated trials, you really have to determine if an IND, an investigator new drug application, is necessary um, because that really impacts the regulatory rigor of which you're, um, you're controlled or bound by. But regardless of the trial, the sponsor, whomever it is, is responsible for the conduct of the clinical trial according to good clinical practice standards. And that has to be applied to all aspects of our research. And this requires either performing all of these duties as an individual, you yourself, or as part of building a team. And um, when you're first starting out, the only option may be to perform all of these duties as an individual until you've developed the, the resources, et cetera, to build a team. But I would say that building a team, a clinical research team is necessary, um, but it's not cheap. In academia, I think a lot of us would find that, that research is encouraged, and, but you may be um, sad to find out that if your research isn't at least cost neutral or have really high likelihood of a future for funding, um, academia may not support you as you expect it would. Um, but you will definitely have to perform unfunded research initially to really get your step self started. And what I would like to say is, especially those starting out, is it's very, very important initial, initially, excuse me, to apply for any type of grant funding that may be available. There are a variety of sources. And really, as a young investigator, you may be surprised how few applicants there are for many of these grants. And what you would also be surprised as is if it's a really, really good idea, you'll be able to find funding for it in some way. And with Simon, now that you're actually part of the industry in uh, conducting some of these, um, you know, company sponsored trials and evaluating sort of um, everything. So um, what have you found to be the most interesting and surprising for you from your journey? Yeah, um, I think good science and good ideas are always uh, required to do research in, in pharma or in academia. And I think there's this perception that um, pharma has unlimited resources, unlimited funds, large and big pharma. 
and small and, and tiny biotechs, they're often seen as a this kind of um, infinite money source where money grows on trees. And, and no matter how big you are, that's actually not the case. Um, similar to academia, no one's going to fund anything just for just 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 because, right? There has to be value for patients. There has to be um, an unmet need to develop drugs to to meet those needs or repurpose drugs that actually exist. Um, and and to that extent, uh, sponsors don't always have the same level of in-house expertise. Um, some sponsors may actually outsource complete departments, for instance. If you're a small biotech company with two people in the lab who want to go uh, to a contract research organization to first in human, you probably don't have a, a lot of uh, a lot of resources available. So, so I think I think that's something that um, surprised me. They, some sponsors may have high levels of medical expertise in house, for instance, but no biostatistics, no biostatistics in house, which with the regulators that's so essential to have all this all this there. Or may, they may not have a clinical operations department. So. I think that was something very, very interesting and, and seeing how the funding is built on the back end um, to take that into account or not. Um, and how a lot of, of things can be milestone driven um, as IND filing with the FDA, for instance, or first patient in, for instance, and then you get your next payments coming. So the bank account gets refilled every time you hit those milestones. Um, something that's uh, also um, different is since you outsource many things, uh, more or less depending on the size of your company, you have to manage all those vendors. So if you're hiring out a contract resource organization, for instance, to go out to sites and do your study, you have to manage them, project manage with them. If you're hiring a lab, because you're not doing everything in your own lab, if, if your company even has a, a lab, right? How do you manage that? So that, that was also very, very interesting. You have to find those labs as well and find those vendors. Um, and also a lot of these studies tend to be multi-center, especially at later stages. So um, in academia, mo most, most studies tend to be single-centered or sometimes a bit of a larger multi-center approach. But when you're talking about 20, 30, 60, 200 science globally, that's also a new challenge to get to know these investigators and these networks. Um, and, and because of that, I think it's really a matter of um, keeping those close collaboration with your key opinion leaders, the experts in the field around the world, and, and really being part of those communities becomes even more important to understand the needs and the feasibility. So I think that, that's something that was very different um, in my experience so far uh, compared to academic research. So to briefly follow up on Simon's comment, you know, I said it before that the idea is the easy part. And then I could follow that up with saying it's easy to, to design a study that's multi-million dollar that's going to answer your question, but who are you going to get to fund it? So, you know, during the times that you're you're pursuing your scientific um, hypothesis, you need to build into that a practicality of how I'm going to implement it. What's the budget going to be? How can I carry it out? And you're not going to have one be all end all study. As I've said many times, you start out your first study building your logical sequence of studies that are going to follow through that. And your previous study will inform your next study and your next and your next. And to that point, I think that's a very important uh, point to make because you build on something. And then one, for, for your career, it helps you go from point A to point B to point C. 
but also it makes things feasible and manageable. Same thing on the pharma side. We can come up with all these ideas, these grandiose studies that cost a billion dollars to do, but we can't also lose sight of if this is a first in human or, or an early phase one or phase two proof of concept study, what's the goal here? The goal is also to show that the, the drug works as expected because you can have all those other things around you, but if the drug doesn't work, they become maybe not so relevant depending on what, what your other, other things you're studying. And, and I think that um, also is something that's different uh, between pharma and academia as the types of INDs we have. In, in, the in, the, in the case of pharma, a lot of times it's new compounds that have not been approved or not approved in the jurisdiction or compounds being repurposed with a very potential, uh, very different potential risk benefit profile. So then you need, uh, from a commercial entity, uh, you need a commercial IND. And oftentimes you'll need to have formal meetings with the agency, starting from even interact meetings, which are usually called pre-pre-IND meetings, uh, for special technologies, special platforms, all the way to a pre-IND meeting before you submit your IND to ask the agency, hey, does this make sense? Do you agree with the endpoints, the safety? Do you agree with how we manufacture the drug? Are specifications to release a lot of drug X okay? Are the impurities fine? All things that I never would have considered in academia because I didn't build a drug in the lab. So. Um, these have very strict timelines uh, that the agency has to abide to in most cases, but that sponsors also have to abide to, which makes for a potentially long process. When you have a 75 day, when you have a 30 day delay or review period, requests for information that come in. Um, so there can be multiple months that go by before you even submit your IND because of these things. And I think that's something that was very different to me as well. On the academic side, we tend to um, deal with drugs that are already marketed in which we want to study them in an investigator-initiated fashion. And these typically fall under the phase four studies. But um, the phase four studies can be either investigator-initiated or pharmaceutical company-sponsored. Um, but I think it's important to understand to follow up on what Simon said is that phase four studies that require an IND require more regulatory rigor. But in reality, you should still have the same requirements that should be satisfied if you have an IND or not. But in short, you know, you have an IND is required for any clinical investigation involving administration of a drug to humans unless the study is exempt. And just, just to briefly follow up on that, you can file for an IND exemption either formally with the FDA or following your local IRB guidance. And reasons for IND exemptions are just, you know, is the drug marketed in the United States? Are the results going to be, are not going to be intended to report it to the FDA as a well-controlled study? Um, it's not intended to support advertising of the drug. And it does not involve a route or administration dose patient population that increases the risk of, drug, of the drug. And it really depends upon how the FDA and how your local IRB defines that. So for example, does the fact that um, tacrolimus um, has been approved in kidney transplant allow you to, to study tacrolimus in a small bowel transplant without an IND? So you just have to lean on your regulatory support that's around you 
to figure out um, that you're abiding within those rules. And so you not only protect yourself, but you protect the institution. And um, believe me, that becomes very, very important in cases when you may be potentially exposing the institution to risk and you'll hear from them really, really quickly. And I think one of the things that at least personally I have been taking away um, sometimes through my personal journey is this whole question, like kind of what Rita said about, you know, it's easy to have a hypothesis. So for example, right now there is that unmet need, right? Like this is the hypothesis. This is what I want to address. This is the unmet need that I want to be able to fulfill that gap. However, then goes into what Simon had talked about, like, and also even with you, Rita, with all these processes that goes into play, which then means that your timeline may be pushed further out, further out. Then you have to really think about by that time point in that future, will that unmet need still be there? And I think that's the part that for an earlier investigators or for um, someone that's just starting out, it's not something that we fully comprehend about the timeline of how long things can take along with the regulatory process, along with the funding, and also even with um, just the whole bureaucracy of the whole entire thing, uh, which then can lead to your good idea becomes irrelevant down the road. I think it's always a risk, right, of historical things happening and historical uh, events. One of the things Rita told me really, really early on is if you want to be good at something, do a literature review on it. See what's been done, see what's coming, be aware of that. There's a lot of things you won't be aware of, but at least it'll make you aware of a lot more things. And in, in pharma, there's a lot of drug intelligence systems that help you figure out what's, what's available, what's out there, what's publicly been filed, what are your potential competitors to help you manage those risks and, and do a risk benefit decision from a commercial and financial standpoint. What is the risk that something will interfere with my development program? Or on the flip side, how should we design this so we're first to get there? I don't really, when I start thinking about an idea now, I would have never thought about this years ago, but the first thing I do now is go to clinicaltrials.gov and search to see if there are other studies out there that are already funded or ongoing that are looking at a similar idea. Now, it, again, it, it goes back to which, what phase you are in your development as an investigator. So I want to transition this into some study-related questions because from the clinical side of things, I'm working with my learners and we are reviewing trials and doing our maintenance immunosuppression topic discussions. Um, there's always questions I get when we do our literature review. So um, just one example I'm going to throw out there, the benefit study, because of course we all talk about Valadisep, for example, benefit trial, right? We compared it to cyclosporin as a standard of care, but I teach my learners that our standard of care is going to be the Chromis. I cite the elite study, elite symphony study. I cite um, the Cochrane review. And um, so sometimes that's some that will tie up learners a little bit in their interpretation of that. So from your clinical perspective, Rita, and as well as your um, industry's perspective, Simon, what determines what the comparator or standard of care is actually going to be? What is going on in the background that affects that, that maybe me as a clinical practitioner has no idea about? So um, 
unfortunately, there's not as eloquent of an answer to this as you would like, and it's very regulatory driven. But basically, the sponsors are limited by what um, other combinations have an FDA approved label for them to use as a comparator. So going back to the timeline that we discussed before um, and thinking about when these other drugs were approved for combination. So tacrolimus was FDA approved in 94 and MMF was approved in 95. However, they not, were not approved to use together in a combination in a product label until 2009, when Estella submitted that to the FDA. And well over 90% of the transplant kidney population was already receiving that combination. But you have to think back with Bilatacep. When did Bilatacep start their first in human phase one studies, their phase two studies, and then moving on to their phase three studies? It was well before the time that the FK-MMF combination was used in the label. You can also go down a similar path with thymoglobulin. Um, thymoglobulin was approved to treat rejection in 98, but was not approved for induction until 2017, despite again, having over 80% of the market share. But these approvals allowed the um, most commonly used immunosuppressive combination of thymoglobin induction, um, tacrolimus MMF in combination as a control arm, basically after 2017. So, so before that time, companies had to make the comparator what was currently marketed in the label. When Bilatacep was starting out, it was, it was Simulect induction, cyclosporin, MMF steroids. As we moved further with um, Invarsis and other drugs, you were able to include um, some of the more potent induction agents, the depleting agents, et cetera. And um, it makes a really, really big difference. And I think that we as a transplant community owe a lot to Estellas for pushing that label change and also to um, Sanofi for pushing the induction label change for thymoglobulin. So now when you come to market, you're comparing it to what is most commonly, truly, your control arm is truly standard of care. Now, I'd like to, you know, kind of hand that off to Simon to talk about how that impacts your overall study design from a sponsor perspective. Yeah, so I, th I think Rita summarized it very, very well. We, we have to follow, and then that's part of why um, we have all these meetings with the agency before going into into uh, studies and patient populations because we need to get an agreement on, on these things with the agency and the agency will say, well, this was approved. Uh, on the flip side, we need to decide if there are multiple comparators possible that are approved, which one are we gonna choose and how um, based on historical events like the approval of Tricrolimus MMF uh, and then before, before even the, the Bella studies were, were um, in, in late phase, and also we can down the line leverage academic research and investigator initiated studies to address some of these gaps down the line. Um, but I think in terms of study design, the endpoints may be a bit different. The time points when you look at things may be a bit different depending on whether you use cyclosporin, 
whether you use Tacrolimus as the control arm, whether you use an mTOR as a control arm, and, and you have to, to design that from the get-go. And, and with all the timeline it takes, it's really hard to change um, midway. So let's say you're designing a new immunosuppressant today, but that, and you're comparing it to Tacrolimus, which is what's used now, but there's a new super agent that comes out in the market in the meantime, and you know you won't get to market for 10 years, what do you do? All your non-clinical data is compared to the standard of care that's approved, your toxicity data is as well. So, and this, these are all important aspects to support your, your submission to the agency. Um, but also in terms of um, overall study design, different regimens have different efficacy and safety signals. And I think that's important to consider. The rejection rates on steroid monotherapy were much higher than they were on steroids and azathioprine, for instance. They were high on cyclosporin than they were on tacrolimus. That's why tacrolimus is a standard of care now, despite all the other safety signals with, with tacrolimus. Um, and I think that really goes back into uh, looking at our, our clinical trial design and endpoints and seeing what's what we can do, a lot, a lot of the cardiology trials are considered gold standard because they're very, very, very large with 20,000 patients. But when you look at the absolute effect size that they're, they're looking at, it's very small. The difference, you're looking at a 0.5% or 1% reduction in, in major ad, adverse cardiovascular events. And I'm not super up to date on a lot of the new trials and endpoints in cardiology, but um, that's why you need so many patients. When we look at um, when cyclosporin came out, the initial approval studies, um, cyclosporin alone compared to azathioprine steroids led to a 20% absolute reduction in graft failure, not rejection, graft failure by one year. And they had just over 230 some odd patients in the study, we, we didn't need 10,000 patients to show such a massive reduction. On the flip side, when you're looking at bringing reduction down from, let's say, 10% to 8%, right? If you, if you based on a rejection rate of tacrolimuses, let's say roughly 10%, uh, bringing down to 10% for a new agent, you need about 3,300 patients per group to do that to show that difference and get approved. And then I'll ask a rhetorical question to the audience, think about this for just a moment, but what was the largest transplant study done in recent times? Symphony Elite was probably the largest one that I can think of. Um, Two-year enrollment, 83 sites, 15 countries, 1,645 participants were very, very far from the 6,000. I just mentioned before. So I think that that also that comparator arm uh, as a long answer to the question um, can really have impacts. And then it, it all comes down to what are you studying? What's your endpoint and what's your unmet? The alternative is to study patients for five to 10 years and get more outcomes and more endpoints, uh, more events down the line. If you do that though, you're not bringing therapies to patient in a timely fashion. So we have to balance that.
And I think that kind of brings to the next question as well to that, you know, as you kind of have talked about that, um, depending on the safety efficacy profile and, you know, sort of the timeline that various different types of standard could potentially be used, which then, as you know, right now, there's a lot of newer practitioners, a lot of new programs that's being sprawled out pretty much everywhere and with newer transplant pharmacists that are also part of um, newer practices um, in general. So which then a lot of times as they're reading these literature, they're doing their literature search, looking at transplant literature, um, and how can they actually apply all these heterogeneous sort of literature that's not quite the same as, let's say, cardiology, as Simon have alluded to, where you have 6,000 some patients. Uh, what kind of major considerations can you actually think about and to have when you're trying to apply these heterogeneous transplant literature to your institutional population? I think when considering the, the trials that have been published in transplantation and applying them to your clinical practice, um, you do have to take special care to notice what type of population that you have. So, you know, you, it's going to be, but it's going to be um, grouped into two large groups. You know, patients are immunologic high risk, low risk, moderate risk, or low risk. I think we all recognize that most patients that go into especially phase two and phase three studies are immunologic normal to low risk patient. They're the perfect patient. So you have to um, view those results with caution when you tend to expand that to a higher immunologic risk patient. The other category that we drop patients into are basically in today's terms, patients with um, a certain level of KDPI. So what is your expectation that these kidneys will function immediately or not? And what differences in immunologic risk does that bring to you? And also what risk are you willing to take with potential nephrotoxicity of some of the available agents that we have. So it's always very important to consider um, all of those aspects in your patient population. We at the University of Cincinnati, I can say, I can say or we are primarily a steroid withdrawal center. We stop steroids at five days. However, we recognize that we do that under the context of always using T-cell depleting induction of some sort and maintaining um, therapeutic levels of tacrolimus and MMF. Now, in other centers who may have a greater immunologic risk patient population than we do, or are not routine, do not routinely want to use T-cell depleting induction, you have to review those results in the, in the, um, through the lens of your, of your program. When it comes to um, finding new innovative therapies and transplantation, I do think it's important to realize, and I can say this because I'm old, is because most of the people taking care of transplant patients today know nothing other than the tacrolimus MMF combination and a 10% acute rejection rate. And it's, it's virtually impossible to innovate on that with decreasing um, acute rejection rates. We're not going to be able to do that. We're going to have to find um, other endpoints that allow us to expand the um, new drugs that we may develop to improve 
transplantation immunosuppression. And what I like to say is really overcome the inertia that we have right now in transplantation. And I think that um, our truly one unmet clinical need in kidney transplantation is really the mission of one kidney for life. Granted, our, our, the half-lives of our kidneys have improved um, to 15 to 20 years, depending upon if it's a living donor or deceased donor. But if you're getting a kidney transplant when you're, you know, 10 years old or even 40 years old, that is not necessarily enough um, life years of that kidney to last you till the end of your life. So it is imperative that we find a way to um, maximize the half-life of these kidneys. And I personally view immunosuppression as a modifiable risk factor that we can potentially address to remove some of the um, cardiovascular morbidity um, and mortality that may be associated with that, or the developments of donor-specific antibodies or um, calcineurin inhibitor changes on biopsy that impact the um, long-term half-life of the kidneys at this time. Simon, do you have anything you'd like to add? I don't know if anyone can really add on to Rita's answer. Um, well, I think, I think Rita really nailed it. Um, it's, so I, I can't recommend anything, using anything off label, um, formally, but, um, putting the clinician ad on and understanding that there's different patients, different patient populations, different studies and, and, and different approved regimens that each have their, their benefits and, and their problems. And putting the patient at the center of those decisions as well can help. We, we may think that one adverse event that could potentially happen is unacceptable, but the patient may say, well, I'd rather not have any tremors because I'm a photographer. And tolerating anything else can completely work for me. And you say, okay, well, this other regimen based on these studies, this is what we can expect and how it's going to go and this is how it's approved. Uh, I think... In addition to that, and, and we refer to cardiology because they have a lot of studies of very large scale, but sometimes when I used to practice in cardiology and I, I, I don't want to you know, date myself, but uh, we're like, is this patient a hope patient, a hope two patient? How do I go about primary prevention? And then there's 15 studies and then they're all a bit different with a bit of different dosing, right? So sometimes there's information overload and it comes back to the art of, of transplant pharmacy practice. There's a reason why People train so long to be able to understand the fundamentals of pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, immunology, all the complex interrelationships, right? So I think we everyone interprets data. Uh, no, no patient is purely a um, little thing you plug in a study, right? It doesn't happen that way. So, so I think that's part of it. And as well, there's a lot of investigator-initiated studies and and if you're seeing a patient that you don't know how to approach or there's no, there's no answer, then I would say, put your researcher hat on. Do your lit search, reach out to colleagues. If there's really no answer, that could be a great unmet medical need that could get funded through either pharma or separate grants to answer that question. And I think that's where the best research questions often come from. 
So I want to go back to talking about research design and study design a little bit. We've had a lot of really good talks. Simon and Rita, you brought up some really good points that in cardiology trials, for example, when we're looking at the maze endpoint, it's like a 0.5 to 1% difference. So they need thousands upon thousands of patients. Um, but we have our endpoints where acute rejection is being cut by what, like 10% with the innovation of calcium inhibitors, for example. So going forward at this point in time, now that we have our what's usually considered our, our standard immunosuppression, tacrolimus, mycophenolate, press minus steroids, depending on the immunosuppression regimen. How does industry decide on things like outcomes, um, safety endpoints, the duration of the study we're looking at, the study participants, for example? Um, we kind of talked about um, endpoints in respect to maybe looking at other markers like CNI-related um, changes on biopsy, but what about things like EGFR, which some of us say, is that really the best surrogate for long-term outcomes? This has become a lengthy question. I apologize profoundly, but <laughs> well, um, really just wanted to get your thoughts on how industry makes some of these decisions and some of the discussion that goes on behind the scenes that we might not know when we are later reading your trial? Yeah, it's an essential question because your entire study is geared towards your primary endpoint. Your statistical analysis plan is geared towards your primary endpoint. So you, you, have, to, you have to select it very, very carefully. And um, it's so important that actually the FDA did publish papers on how Bella was approved discussing the endpoints and, and even um, also published their thoughts on using EGFR in, in common renal diseases and rare renal diseases, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable from their perspective. Um, I think it all goes back to good science and the hypothesis driving the development of your drug. The classic studies now are mostly non-inferiority studies um, because otherwise to show superiority, you need either a lot more patients, a lot longer follow-up, our endpoints are just no longer good enough to show superiority. So you can go for non-inferiority and then you say, okay, well, I'm, let's say I'm non-inferior on the classic endpoint of biopsy communicated rejection, patient death, graft loss. Um, what, what else, why am I studying this drug? What's, is it just another drug just because I can? Or what's the unmet need that's at the foundation of this drug? Is it patient reported outcomes? Is it healthcare utilization? Is it, toxicity profiles, right? So that goes into your, your outcomes. Um, I think the initial studies are always, does this drug work? And in transplant, it means our grafts doing okay and surviving and our patients doing okay. And for phase two studies, we can argue, well, that endpoint is fine and is in line with whatever else we have in terms of proof of concept. It's, um, it, it's good enough in a lot of cases and that's discussed with the FDA. So based on um, efficacy and the FDA will, tend to say efficacy is a sponsor's risk to take. Safety, the FDA will be the watchdog. So if you choose a wrong endpoint, but you're not gonna hurt patients, the agency may say, we don't agree with your endpoint, but safety seems fine. So let's see how it goes potentially. Um, or this is not a label, we cannot put that endpoint in the label, but you still wanna study it. But um, in the end, it really comes back to the hypothesis behind your drug, 
what is acceptable to the agency and how do you want your label to look like down the line? And these are negotiations that take place over years. And, and that's why we may very well say, well, we'll have a primary endpoint that shows non-inferiority, but I'm going to have two or three secondary endpoints that show superiority for patients feeling better, for instance, or reducing overall costs. And I think that's where a lot of the things in transplantation are shifting because our classic endpoint of biopsy per acute rejection, um, graft loss, patient death, all very important things, um, but maybe may may, may need some revamping in the context of our new drugs we're developing. And you could argue the benefit studies, there was a lot more rejection, more severe rejection. A lot of patients were presumably taken off the latticept, but down the line, the patients survived longer, the grafts did better. So should we rethink our concept of rejection under bilatisept or under co-stimulation blockade when, especially when we look at a lot of the biopsies of these patients, they have very severe rejection with a seemingly normal renal function. So, um, so there's, that's an entire other separate discussion about this endpoint. But um, basically, we look at what the agencies approved in the past. If, if we have new validated endpoints, we can propose them as well and see if the agency agrees. Uh, in terms of renal function, uh, I don't want to speak on behalf of the agency, but um, for sure in some rare renal diseases or, uh, or depending on the unmet need, a slope of GFR decline, for instance, has been accepted now uh, in certain programs. Um, but again, this is a long-standing negotiation with the agency. And, and again, I think at least the way I, I work every day is what's the unmet need for the patient? I think the agency will always or well, I, my feeling is the agency will not say no to a rational argument about putting patients first. Whether they'll agree with you and approve your endpoint is a different story. But I think if we think of patient first and good science and, and valid endpoints, that, that's the way to go about it. And in transplantation, the endpoints have been the same for a long time, which makes it difficult now. Wanted to introduce to the transplant community, and that is surrogate endpoints and it hasn't really met prime time yet but hopefully it's approaching but I think going back to what Simon says with the our rates of acute rejection patient survival and graft survival being um, so low that there's really not a lot of room for us to prove on that we implement non-inferiority studies so basically you say that your intervention is quote unquote no worse than however you may say, it may be better in another endpoint, i.e., um, you know, what, whatever it happens to be. You could implement, um, you could apply to the FDA and get approval of your product based upon a surrogate endpoint. And then your product could be introduced to the transplant field while the sponsor is still collecting all of the data on that surrogate endpoint to actually validate that, yes, it was better in this, you know, long-term EGFR or, or some toxicity um, endpoint or what, whatever. The thing of the, the, the point to make here is the sponsor has to be willing to take the risk and say, okay, if the surrogate endpoint is not met, we will now withdraw that, that drug from the market. So that's, that's a big risk, but there are a lot of, of different ways that, that sound exciting that may, we may be able to advance drug development. 
But as I said, from the very, very beginning, the devil's in the details, getting it, getting it across the finish line with the agency to approve it. And, and it actually, you know, panning out for you is, is a a very serious um, risk. And now let's go into a fun question. If you have all the resources in the world with no restrictions from the FDA, no uh, company sponsor restrictions, you can design anything you want. Um, And I think this is a big question that I want to pose to Rita after all these years is what would be your ideal trial design? (laughs) Rita, we're taking notes. If I had no limitations whatsoever, I would have a drug that was non-toxic, no acute rejections, 100% patient and graft survival, and I could guarantee 100% adherence. And I would test that against our standard of care. And I would monitor the patients electronically some way where they did not know they were being monitored, but we were able to collect information about how they felt and functioned that would allow us to show a benefit of this new intervention over what our current practice is. So we all know that's not possible. The other thing that I would like to throw out that is not possible as well, but you ask yourself, what is really and truly your control group? Is your control group FKMMF or is your control group a patient who stays on dialysis? And um, there are a lot of things to think about in transplantation clinical trials. And um, I would definitely say you, you can't design a perfect clinical trial no matter how hard you try. I've been trying to do it for a long, long time. And um, it's difficult. And, and the patients, the patient involvement is very, very important. And the patient voice is very, very important. And, you know, patients' opinions are just as different as their immune systems. You know what I mean? And, and um, we're, we're dealing with a lot of variables these days. Yeah. And Simon, if you can design a trial of your own uh, with no restrictions, uh, what kind of trial would you like to have? Yeah, well, of course, everything that Rita echoed. But I think in addition, um, having something simple for patients. Uh, When you think about it, I don't think we'll be able to get away from surgery. I Hopefully we can. I love my surgical colleagues. But if we can avoid a surgery to a patient even better, uh, an implantable kidney or, or who knows, a chip. Um, and, and eventually I think for patients to get rid of the need of immunosuppression altogether with no toxicities. I, but I think in reality, if we some, have some sort of, of kind of reality hat on, I think uh, an agent with in monotherapy that can be self-administered and monitoring for adherence, for instance, and having support for the patients throughout their transplant journey. Not just appointments, not just visiting a provider, but saying that's part of this trial. You have this support. You you, you don't have to use it, right? But you have it either at the site or locally 
share, share experiences and, and give kind of real-time feedback to uh, regulators and, and drug developers on what matters to them. And, and that's, that's probably what I would do with very, very long-term follow-up. You say, we'll somehow keep monitoring you with your consent. Somehow, I don't know how, right? Uh, a lifelong, really, until, until the kidney hopefully uh, outlasts you. And, and I think that's, that's where we have to try and help get burden away from patients patients tool that they, they can relate to in terms of adherence. And if things are not going well, they, finding a way for, for us to, one, listen. I think we need to listen better and for patients to, to feel comfortable telling us. I, you know, in clinical practice, patients, if you switch from one agent to another, for instance, would tell you, well, all of this got better. I never knew it was because of my meds. And they felt miserable for years. So, so I think integrating that, um, how I wish I had all the answers. With what agent, I wish I had all the answers. But I think something simple with minimal toxicity and, and that we hopefully could know how to, how to modulate well um, and, and have, have that aspect for patients to not undergo long-term toxicities you don't need to, but also not put them at risk of, of adverse alloimmune responses. When I was educating patients, I used to say the kidney transplant that's been provided to you has cured your renal failure, but you have a new disease. Your new disease is your disease of immunosuppression, and it requires management. So I guess ideally, I would have a transplant that would not require immunosuppression. Um, then that leads you down the path to tolerance. Um, and I'm not going to even bring up the tolerance debate, but obviously we're not, we're not there. We're certainly not there for the majority of patients. But I think that I would like to give a patient a kidney transplant without immunosuppression. But I think both of you definitely brought up a really great point, which is the voice of the patient, right? And this is something that we don't commonly consider a lot of times when we are either evaluating um, you know, transplant literature, or even sometimes considering the type of regimen that a particular center should um, adapt as their um, standard or practice. And I think that is kind of a way that both industry and also our field is moving towards. It's incorporating these voices of the patient, the opinions of the patient, patient-reported outcomes as these um, major endpoints that we should be considered going forward. So thank you both for really bringing to the forefront sort of these voices that we really need to consider and hear down the road um, for the future of our transplant field as well too. I have one last quick question I want to pose to both of you. So um, we'll say this one's aimed at our residents and our new practitioners. Um, besides listening to our podcast today and your expertise, what can pharmacists do to become more versed in this field with the things that go on, go on behind the scene with industry, FDA, um, and how those influence the studies and the data that we collect and how to interpret that. So what are the stepping stones to, you know, start getting better at interpreting data in this way? Well, there's a little thing I've been doing for almost 30 years. It's called a residency. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard un unless you're actually doing it, right? And 
And I think doing it is actually, first of all, finding a mentor who's been doing it and who's doing it. Finding colleagues. It's okay to ask for help. It's, it's okay to ask for mentorship. Actually, we should. We really should. Um, people do it all the time on different lists, listservs. And then it's a community of collaboration. It's okay to reach out and say, hey, how do I do this? What does this mean? How does this work? Um, finding your allies at your center and your networks. I may not be within your center, but an example that people ask me all the time is, well, the RB is so complicated and they always come back and they never agree. And well, my solution to that was I sat on the RB. And then I was like, oh, this is how this works. Okay. Right? Pharmacists have been chairs or are chairs of institutional IRBs at big, big, big IRBs, big centers. It's doable. Nothing has to be chair. Um, but that mentorship, doing it, stepping stones, um, start, start with the IRB because then you get to see a whole bunch of things that the sponsors submit that you may not see anywhere for 10, 15, 20 programs at a time, not just yours, a lot of them. You can read the FDA guidance. It's hard to put into context without doing it, but uh, the FDA has a lot of guidance out there that explains how it goes. One of my favorites is how do you get a meeting with the agency? This entire guidance tells you exactly what to do, how to do it. Now, you have to do it to experience it, but the, 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 the delays between this and that and the time frame, And then take advantage of all the public resources out there. Get on the listservs from different societies for regulatory industry look at the fda websites they have a bunch of super exciting really exciting webinars on the evolution of regulatory science endpoints patient reported outcomes and then you kind of see how they think because it's fda people it's fda officers talking to you about this there's a bunch of public workshops for transplant there's a lot of public workshops for transplant that help highlight the fda's thinking EMA does the same thing in Europe. So I think you, you kind of have to step out of your comfort zone in terms of clinical practice sometimes and, and go out, branch out to, to the FDA's associated centers and start learning about it. And ask, ask your colleagues, either in academia and industry, if you want to start doing it, find a team, find mentors, start small, start small, start feasible and go from there. But it's okay to ask for help. It's, and it often prevents you from spinning your wheels for hours and hours and hours. And I really think that you really kind of hit on a great point, which is kind of expanding the horizons and not be just restrictive to sort of our tunnel vision of just transplant, 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 that sometimes it's okay to just, like you said, be uncomfortable, broaden, and try to think about how can we even learn from other fields or even looking uh, into these regulatory resources that we otherwise have never thought of um, even um, venturing into. So I think um, I can say that on behalf of the audience, we've definitely heard a lot of great wisdoms and a lot of um, you know great uh, advices from the both of you and also your experiences have really enriched this whole entire discussion. And it really helps our listeners in kind of directing them to maybe perhaps some path that they can start thinking about um, in venturing into and going into to um, start their journey 
Uh, so I can say that for sure, we thank you both for your time and for being here and also a very enlightening conversation. And um, your definitely your experience is really uh, what made this podcast um, so well sought out after. I'm gonna have to echo that. Thank you to both of you so much. This was really interesting and brought up a lot of things I hadn't really ever considered before. And also a lot of things to think about for the future, right? Like now that we have what we deem as contemporary immunosuppression, what does that mean for contemporary research and trials and outcomes going forward? So um, I've really in the past hour started to open my mind up to a lot of different things. And um, I can't wait to share it with my, my learners going forward and continue being a learner myself in this area. Lifelong learning. And it's great that we have different perspectives from the both of you as well, too. So um, once again, on behalf of ACCP IMTR, uh, the mTOR, you know, um, we thank both of you, our important mentors of uh, our field. And I'm sure there will be plenty of uh, audiences and learners that might reach out to you for further advice going down the road. And thank you guys for all your contributions to the field and your work in advancing um, just transplant literature and transplant um, clinical trial data in general. So um, thank you both. And uh, we appreciate um, your involvement. And uh, this is it for our podcast. So thank you all for being here today. And my name is Eileen. And I'm Lauren. So thank you for joining us today. And, um, and Rita and Simon, thank you both as well, too. And we will see you at the next episode. <laughs>